Well, if you have a copy of the, the book, The Glory of a True Church, you can open it up to page 7, and we're going to continue after a, a brief excursus on the subject of pastoral authority, really just looking at the titles that the, the Spirit of God gives to this office. We're going to jump back on the path with Mr. Keach and see as he gives us a brief summary of the work of the, the pastoral office or the, the duties and functions. The title that he gives it is of the work of a pastor, bishop, or overseer. Uh, some of this might sound like repetition, but think of it this way. We looked at the titles And we just said, here are the titles the Holy Spirit has given. What are some things that we might deduce from these titles? And we looked at a little bit of the work. Well, Keech is going to take the other approach. He's going to simply lay out a description of the work. And I think that if we pay attention, we'll be able to see how what he says actually fits nicely with the titles that the Scriptures give. Even though he doesn't make the effort here to list all of the various titles we see how they all fit together in the description or the work itself. If we put it in the form of a question, somebody might say, well, why should the elders be preaching the Word? Well, because the elders are also (coughs) pastors, shepherds. They are to feed the sheep. The, The work suits the titles that are given, and the titles match the work. So what we're going to do is Uh, Just walk through the material here on page 7. Keach gives five points to summarize the work of a pastor, bishop, or overseer. And I've given them my own little headings to to summarize what he has said here. And hopefully it will be simple and maybe even a little more brief than we're used to. So the first thing that we see is that a pastor or elder is to feed the flock with conviction. Feed the flock with conviction. We saw this last week especially connected to the title, pastor or shepherd. The pastor elder is to feed the flock on the Word of God, and he's to do that with a conviction in in, in himself, a conviction concerning the high calling of the task and also what kind of man he must be in order to to fulfill that task. Now this is the longest of these five points. He keeps, describes the work, and then he'll describe the man. Sort of goes back and forth. The work and the man, the work and the man. And so that's, that's how we'll look at it. So first, as for the work in general, he says, and now I'm going to read, he says, the work of a pastor is to preach the word of Christ or to feed the flock to administer all the ordinances of the gospel that belong to his sacred office, and to be faithful and laborious therein, studying to show himself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. So he must feed the church with the word of God. That is We might say that is the supreme and preeminent function of the office that then plays itself out in in different atmospheres or, or places. But notice what else he says. He says, he uses this phrase, 
to administer all the ordinances of the gospel that belong to his sacred office. Now, when we hear or hear the word ordinances, or maybe the ordinances of the gospel, we our minds can go in one of two directions. Typically, our minds would think specifically of baptism and the Lord's Supper because we're used to referring to those as the ordinances of the church. We call them, another word would be the sacraments. Or that phrase could also be a reference generally to all of the circumstances of church worship. So, in particular, or in a limited sense, Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, so Keach would be saying, the work of a pastor is to preach, to baptize, to administer the Lord's Supper. Or, more broadly, all of the circumstances of church worship. The work of a pastor is to preach the word, feed the flock, and administer all of the circumstances of the worship of the church. Which is it? Well, in our confession... Chapter 26, paragraph 6, we read that church members are to give themselves up to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. That's from our confession. Same phrase that Keach uses here in a different work. There's good reason to take this phrase, the ordinances of the gospel, in the confession to be a broad reference to everything that Christ commanded to be done in the worship of the church or in the worship service and not merely what we call the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then Keach picks up that same phrase and uses it in his work on uh, the, the work of a pastor. Church members, according to our confession, have to agree to be in subjection to all of the parts of the worship of God in a gospel church. That's essentially what it's saying. It's not saying, well, they just have to agree to be baptized and come to the Lord's table. No, all of the ordinances of worship, the members have to say, we subject ourselves to the, the, the service of the worship and everything that goes into that. So when Keach says here that a pastor is to administer all the ordinances of the gospel that belong to his sacred office... It, it seems like he's referring to that, to the administration or the, the dispensation, the handing out or the ministry of all of the parts of the worship of God. In other words, to put it most briefly, the pastors are the ones who officiate the worship service. They are to lead the congregation through the parts of worship in the church. And this again goes back to our thinking about what a worship service is. It's, it's not a, a random or, or thrown together happenstance event of exuberant celebration like a birthday party or a, a baby shower where everybody just come and we're just going to have this and we're going to have that and this so and so is going to do this and there's going to be balloon animals and there's going to be games. And a worship service is not that. It doesn't even get close to that. Biblically, a worship service, the, the solemn assembly, is a, is a structured, ordered service of worship where the people walk through what we refer to typically as the liturgy. You go through the order of the things that God has commanded in a, in a, a solemn and ordered sense. 
and, and we often point to other groups or, or meetings of people who do many of the same types of things. Uh, certain groups might get together and they say, here's the order of what we're going to do. We begin with a prayer. Then we're going to move to the Pledge of Allegiance. Then there's going to be an announcement of the, the, the business of the meeting. Then we're going to walk through the business. And then someone's going to close with, are there any questions? And then somebody's going to make sure that the, the, the meeting is sealed up and comes to an end. Well, a worship service is similar to that. There's an order and a structure to it that is to be uh, led by those who God has given to administer the ordinances of the gospel. And 2 Timothy 2.15 says, uh, well, well I'll, I'll read Keach here. He takes us to 2 Timothy 2.15. He is to be faithful and laborious therein. So, so the ministry of the Word and also the administration of the ordinances of the gospel. He's to be faithful and laborious therein, studying to show himself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, as Paul says, and, and I'll just read the whole verse do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So whether it be preaching or the whole aim and direction of the worship of God in the worship service, it's the duty of the elders, just like the priests of old, it's the duty of the elders to show themselves trustworthy and, and diligent in making sure that the service is conducted properly, and that the Word of God is taught rightly, that things happen according to uh, a, a good orderly fashion. Those of you who've been up here, you know we, we always write down an order of service on a yellow sticky note here. We don't hand out a, a bulletin, but that the order of service is written on a, a yellow sticky note here. The, the reason that I do that, because I, I rarely look at it unless I forget the hymn number, the reason that I do that, just so you know, is so that if something happens and I'm dead, there's a sticky note here that tells what needs to happen. There, there's, there's, or, or somewhere. You can find it. Here's what's going to happen. He, he just got sick and we had to carry him outside. What do we do? Well, it says right here, the next thing on the agenda is this and this and this. Just to make sure that things are conducted properly. That's one of the, the offices or one of the functions of the office of the pastor elder. Now, in our day, we often see a distinction between the worship leader and the preacher. That's usually how it's viewed. You've got the, the man who preaches, and, then, and, and his sole purpose is just to get up, talk for a while, sit back down. We've got a, a, a host of other people who are conducting everything else. But from a biblical and, and also historical perspective, it's the pastor acting as a shepherd who steps out in front and leads the people of God in worship, to know their God, to worship their God, to be able to lay down and rest at the feet of God. That's, that's what the worship is meant to do. Somebody has to conduct that. As a matter of fact, one word that is often translated minister in Scripture is the Greek word liturgos, which is the word from which we get our term liturgy, the order of worship. And Hebrews 8.2 says that Christ is a minister, a, a liturgos, in the heavenly holy place. Now what's the picture there? What's, it's, it's as if Christ is the worship leader. Christ is conducting and leading the worship of His people in the heavenly holy place. 
And so it should be no surprise that his under-shepherds are those who are the under-leaders of worship in the assembled church, the earthly holy place. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, I, I don't think it would be appropriate to jump from that to, well, a pastor or elder must always be the one who leads the songs. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I think if that's possible, that ought to be done. Um, but at, at the very least, it's the pastors or elders who should be uh, orchestrating the worship service, keeping it orderly, and at least letting everybody else know what's happening, rather than showing up on the Lord's Day and asking the worship leader, hey, what songs are we singing today? Now, that's not their job. If they have any function, it is to assist the singing, but not as leaders or conductors of the service. That's the job that God has given to the, the pastor elder. Now he goes to the man in particular. He is to be a steward of the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1, and therefore ought to be a man of good understanding and experience, being sound in the faith and acquainted with the mysteries of the gospel because he is to feed the people with knowledge and understanding. So the pastor has to have a working knowledge of the things that he's seeking to impart to the people. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.6 that an elder must not be a recent convert, literally a neophyte. He can't be a fresh young plant coming up out of the ground. He must have some living experience of that which he seeks to minister to others. And we, if we look biblically, we say, well, that we, we can't uh, legislate a time frame because biblically Paul would come and preach and he would come right along later, oftentimes a year, two years later, and he would appoint elders. It wasn't that he said, well, you've got to be a Christian for five years or seven years. Very often it might uh, depend greatly upon the condition of the flock. These men have to at least be a little further ahead than those in their care, but they, they, they have to be, uh, have some experience in what they're going to be feeding. Keach references 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17. He says, For if I preach the gospel, this is Paul, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. As a new covenant minister, Paul and, and those pastor elders now in the church, we are new covenant ministers, ministers of the gospel. Paul says, I preach the gospel. I'm a minister of the gospel. A stewardship has been entrusted to me. Now I have to then administer that stewardship to others. And that's what a, a, a pastor elder does, and he has to be acquainted with that. It says he must be faithful and skillful to diligently declare the mind of God and to preach in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4.2, God having committed unto him the ministry of reconciliation, a most choice and sacred truth, 2 Corinthians 5.18. Again, it, he has to be faithful, skillful. It takes work and a working knowledge to get to the mind of God in the Scriptures that's one thing. We, we all should be doing that to some extent privately, trying to get to the mind of God. But, it, but it's, it's another thing altogether to then be able to impart something of that to other people in a way that is edifying. So it, it takes some labor. Paul tells Timothy, 
preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The pastor elder is to be ready in season and out of season. This is important. This is something we tend to overlook. I would rather have one man who's ready in season and out of season to bring something to feed the flock than to have a hundred men who constantly say, I need more time, I need more time, I need more time just to polish sermons. There are times when you don't have time to polish sermons. The people need to be fed, right? Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready to bring something to the people. Not because it's going to look great on you, Polished sermons make preachers look good many times. That's not the goal. The goal is to feed the flock. Now, if, if you've got time to polish a sermon, polish the sucker up. But if you don't have time, the, the, we, we have to be prepared. A man has to be ready to pull something old out of the treasury, blow the dust off of it and say, hey, circumstances are this, so here's what we've got and here's what we're going to work with. And feed the sheep. Be ready in season and out of season. We, we, have, we have come into a culture where our most beloved sermons are preached by men who were given six months to a year to get ready for that one sermon, to deliver in a, in a broad and general sense. Now, if, if that's what we are expecting from those men who have been given six days or maybe an evening to prepare a sermon, then we're going to think, well... What are, we, what are we working with here? What do we got? What's the problem? That's not normal. That's not normal. I, I can assure you, and, and, and whether it be in, in delivery or, or many times in content, but the, the sermons that John Calvin would, would deliver on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at 6 o'clock in the morning probably did not come across like the, the, the conference sermons that we hear on YouTube. They weren't the same. His job was to walk through the text and feed the people the Word of God. And we would many times have probably thought, this is the most drawn, drawn out, boring, like what, what? because we're so entertainment driven. The, the, the feeding of the flock and the delivery of the Word is not to be about entertainment. And what that requires many times is, is for, for people to say, look, we just want to be fed. We just want to hear the Word of God read. Just give us a truth. Show us who our God is. And, and we will worship Him, not entertain us. We are here to be entertained. That, that's not the right perspective. So he, he has to be ready in season and out of season. And Keach says, What greater interest in the world has God than this, that He's committed unto men? It is a high and holy calling. It, just as we should say, every one of us as church members, it's a high and holy calling to be a member of the body of Christ. That's a big deal. In the same way, it's a big deal to be called and committed and trusted with the gospel as a stewardship. Returning to the work, Keach says, Moreover, he must make known the whole counsel of God to the people. Acts 20.20, 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You say, which was it, the whole counsel of God, or was it the things that were profitable? Yes. As, as time and, and opportunity afforded, and as the people grew, He would give them what was profitable for them. 
and that would fit into the whole counsel of God in as much as they could, be, they could receive. But a pastor must feed the flock of God with that conviction. Here's what my job is, and here's what kind of man I ought to be to do it. Number two, he is to visit the flock with intention. Visit the flock with intention. We saw this last week under the title of overseer and that idea of the day of visitation. That a pastor is required to know his congregation, to look in on them, to watch over them with a sense of intention. The goal of acting. Not just, it's not just observing, but looking to see what ought to be done. Number, number two, Keach says, a pastor is to visit his flock, to know their state, to watch over them. Proverbs 27, 23, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Uh, many times, what we are able to know, what a man is able to know is, is I guess I should say almost all the time, it's going to be limited to what he gets. People are able to give short, quick answers, to withhold the, the whole truth, to cover over reality with certain things. A man can't help that if that's the way people choose to respond. But the desire is to get to know the state of the people. The, the point is that his eye must be on the people. Now, why is this important? Why, why would we even say this? For us, as a habit, for a good while, this seems like normal. Okay? Prior to us instituting this practice... I would bet most of us had never been a part of a church where there was regular pastoral visitation. I've, I have never seen it anywhere. So we might think, oh yeah, visit the flock. Okay, we, we get it. We do that. This is not normal anymore, sadly. Back when, as Keach was writing, what he's saying is this, is this ought to be expected. This is a part of the work. And the intention in these this knowledge or this oversight is to, to serve their needs. He says to support the weak, to strengthen the feeble-minded, to assist the tempted. Very often there might be weaknesses or, or uh, shortcomings of thought or understanding that people don't feel like they can verbalize in a, on a Sunday or in a corporate meeting or, or in a, in, when, when there might be two or three other people around. And in a private setting is the only place where they can say, I'm struggling with this, or I need to understand this, or could you help me see this? And these meetings are for that. Paul said in Acts 20.35, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul knew his job was to help the weak. One of the, the statements that I mentioned many times that that stands in my mind as a, a good example of pastoral common sense and wisdom was when Jacob, the well-experienced shepherd, was going to meet Esau or, or uh, said to his brother Esau after they met in Genesis 33, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of His servant, and I will lead on slowly, 
at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Jacob knew that he had to govern the movement of that whole company according to the weaknesses of the most vulnerable. He didn't say, I've got some fast sheep, I've got some slow sheep, you, you slow, weak nursing sheep, keep up, we're out of here. He didn't say that. Strong, healthy sheep can always slow down. But young, weak, and frail sheep cannot always speed up. He knew that. So he said, I'm going to govern the way I'm moving according to the weak and the frail and those who need slow walking. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. This is a part of that, that oversight, that visitation, looking and thinking. How, how fast do we need to be going? Are there weaknesses that need to be taken into consideration? Are there, are there temptations that some are undergoing that need, they need to be helped with? <clears throat> Keach also points out that some interactions between pastor and church member are in order to reprove them that are unruly. To me, this is the, the absolute hardest part of all of the work. It is necessary, never fun, never enjoyable. Reproving the unruly, going to a church member, a sheep, in a private setting and saying, I'm seeing some problems and there needs to be reproof here. And I will say, it's important for, for all of us to understand, when reproof comes, especially from, from us as elders, you're, you're not going to walk away wondering, was I just reproved? Okay? We, it will be very, very clear. Okay? I don't think it's fair to anyone to constantly speak in code so that we, you, both parties walk away thinking, did I, did I just get in trouble? Was I just fussed at? Did I do something? I'm not really sure what the point of that conversation was. Was I supposed to leave and am I supposed to be doing something? That wouldn't be fair. So if, if you're leaving a conversation thinking that, you weren't reproved. You might have been encouraged. There might have been some things talked about. But when, when biblical reproof comes, it needs to come this way. I've seen this. The Bible says this. What I'm seeing is a sinful pattern. You need to work on that. How can I help you work on that? Okay. That, that's how that should work. That way you'll know, hey, I, I just got reproved with the Scriptures. I, I think that's a fair way to think. So hopefully nobody leaves conversations. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm like this. If you come to me and you say you learned something from the Scriptures that is uh, maybe convicting or, or pretty much anything, I'm, I, I tend to walk away convicted from it. Anytime anybody brings me something from the Word of God, I, I'm the type of person that immediately takes that into my, my conscience and begins to wonder, am, am, were, were they trying to say something to me? Am I wrong somewhere? Lord, how, how should I be thinking about these things? If you leave a conversation like that, you weren't reproved. And, and that's not the intention. And, and if you need to, you can come back and say, 
let me get this. Let me get this straight. Was I? Am I in trouble? Did I do something wrong? Um, but if you're being reproved as unruly, you'll know it. Sins will be named. The scriptures will be used. It will be a clear and formal, uh, as formal as a private conversation can be. But I don't think it would be fair to to do anything less just to leave people wondering if they're in trouble. The pastor must visit the flock with intention. Not to fill up time, not to check off a list. We don't come to visit you so that we can say, well, we did it. We don't ask the questions that we ask and listen to the answers because we get to write it on a time card later and turn it in and get bonus hours or, or time and a half over time. It's the, the, the purpose is so that we can, to the best of our ability, know the condition of the flock. So that when people say, how's the church doing? We can say, they seem to be doing well. Well, how do you know they're doing well? In a lot of churches, the answer would be, well, when everybody comes in on Sunday, they're all smiling, they're all dressed well, everybody seems to be happy. Well, we all act like that in public. On, on the Lord's Day, usually, we put on our best face. We want to be able to say the church is doing well because it seems that there is a consistent use of the Word of God daily by all of the members, that family worship is taking place consistently, that, that people are, are in the Word and in prayer, and that there's not... Uh, animosity and angst between anybody in the congregation, but people are getting to know one another and people are sensing their spiritual uh, life. Whether it's good or bad, people are wrestling with spiritual issues from the Word of God and that's how we know the church is well. And again, remember, we're, we're doing all of this because we will have to give an account. We, we don't punch cards to show our time, but there will come a day when we will answer for all of those who sat under our care, we will give an account. That's why it's important that answers are, are honest and, and truthful so that we can know and help. But a pastor, again, must visit the flock with intention. Number three, the pastor is to pray for the flock with compassion. Pray for the flock with compassion. Like the apostles before us, the elders of a church are to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Keach says, there at number three, he is to pray for them at all times. With Epaphras, we pray as one, it says he was always struggling on behalf of the saints in his prayers. Paul could say, I've heard Epaphras pray. He's struggling for you all in his prayers. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3.10, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. The elders are to be praying for the compassion or, or praying with compassion for the flock. But that, that compassion, where there is real compassion, it's going to show itself in other ways, not just private prayer. And so Keach says that a pastor is to be with them, pray for them at all times, and be with them also when sent for and desired and as opportunity serves and to sympathize with them in every state and condition with all love and compassion. A pastor stands ready to drop what he's doing if necessary as opportunity serves and be present with the sheep in all occasions. Now this is, we'll, we'll see the flip side of this in section 4, I believe, the duties of church members. But this is a lost facet of the Christian ministry in a church. In, in many places, I would say, sadly, especially among the young, restless, and reformed who, who like 
the pastor to be a talking head. They like good sermons, but they're not usually as ready to receive the fullness of the ministry. But it used to be normal. The pastor was called upon to be present, especially in times of bereavement or grief. What did you, if somebody died, what did you do? You called the pastor. That's the, the first call you make was to call the pastor. These types of things are lost. We, we, we might feel very often that they're too busy or they're unconcerned. The opposite is true. The opposite is true. A man is never too busy doing his job to do his job. It's the purpose. It's, it's the function of the office. Surely those men who give themselves to compassionate prayer for the flock on a regular basis would be ready and willing to be by the side of those, those flock members, those sheep, when called upon. A pastor must be ready and able and willing to do so. So he prays for the flock with compassion. He prays, but he's also ready to be with them. Fourthly, the pastor is to live before the flock as a demonstration. Live before the flock as a demonstration. Going back uh, to many of the traditions that we've come from, we often think of the pastor as simply the preacher. The problem is, as many have said before me, that a man can unpreach all of his sermons with his lifestyle. And that, that's good for no one. Remember that John Owen said that the design of the, the rule of the church is to represent the holiness, love, compassion, care, and authority of Christ. And surely that means that, that those who hold the office ought to live as an example of holiness, the holiness of Christ before the people. So Keach puts it this way there at number four. And he is to show them in all respects as near as he can a good example in conversation, charity, faith, and purity. Conversation means his lifestyle, way of life. Paul said in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Speaking there to the elders in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 1 Timothy 4, 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So a pastor has to live a life that can be looked upon as an example of Christian character. As, as it said, I believe it was Machane who said that a holy minister is a mighty weapon in the hand of God. What, he said, what my people need most is my personal holiness. He never said what my people need most is is polished sermons. And if you read the, the sermons of Machane, as I've said to many of you, you read the sermons of Machane, you think, Are these the, is this the preaching that, that led to the, the, what we know about Robert Murray Machane? It's very simple, very, in no way elegant, in, in no way technical. Um, what, was, what was the deal? What was, what, was it, what was it about the man? His holiness. His way of life. Now why is this? Why does he have to set this example? Keach says, so that his ministry may be the more acceptable to all. The name of God be glorified and religion be delivered from reproach. Good sermons mean nothing if a man's life contradicts what he preaches. Uh, Richard Baxter put it this way. He said, people don't care if you... If you bark and squawk and fuss about all their sins up there in the pulpit as long as you 
or come right alongside them and, and join in them uh, in their sins with them when you get done. When the life matches the teaching, the people will instinctively receive it with more weight. The Word of God gets a more welcome reception from a life of godliness. And God is glorified because men are, be, are able to see that not only is this Word going out and these things are being said, but that God actually can make a man holy and make a man live a life uh, that is uh, pleasing to Him, and especially that God can work in the life of a public Figure. Now, not all, all pastors are as public as others, but how often is it the very opposite? That what we expect from the public figure is the exact opposite of a, a holy example because we very rarely see it. Christianity is often mocked because its most public professors are worldly at best and utterly sinful at worst. That, that, that brings the, the, the testimony of Christ and His church down into the gutter. But Christianity is delivered from that reproach when its public figures can live what they preach. And so a man must live as a demonstration. It, just, it, it, it is what it is. People will judge a congregation many times based on what they see of one individual or another from that congregation. And that is uh, amplified if it is the, uh, the pastor or one of the elders. They're going to judge a congregation based on what they see of those men in public. So he's to live as a, a demonstration. And then lastly, a pastor's duty is to relate to the flock without discrimination. Relate to the flock without discrimination. Number five, Keach says he must see that he carries it to all with impartiality, not preferring the rich above the poor. James says in James 2.1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Partiality has no place amongst the people of God at all, any of them, but especially from those who lead the flock. Now this does not mean that a pastor is to be more than a man. And, and what I mean by that is this doesn't mean to say that he must relate without discrimination, that he's to show no impartiality or to show no partiality, what that doesn't mean is that there won't be some in the church that he relates to better than others simply out of personality or background or interest. That's, that's normal humanity. There will always be certain people, certain personalities that are drawn together and tend to grow closer. So we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't expect something beyond that as a man. But what, what we're saying here is that as a pastor, specifically in the relation of the pastoral work among the people, he can't show partiality in that work. He can't have favorites when it comes to the work of the ministry. He can't be one who's easily swayed by the rich or by the poor. He can't, he can't be one who's easily pushed along by those with influence or power, as it is with the law of God. The poor don't get a pass in sin just because they're poor. A judge is not to be partial to a man who's broken the law just because he's poor. 
nor is he to be partial to a man just because he's rich. And so in the church, a pastor cannot have uneven weights and measures as he shepherds the flock. In a lot of churches, this is how, how things get done. The, the whole ship is steered as the people in the pew uh, give or withhold their tithe dollars. The, the withholding of tithe dollars is the, the pulling of the, the reins to the right so that the ship begins to move in the way they want to do it. And the rich have the capability to do that. And, and they'll say, well, when you, when you straighten up, then we'll, we'll start giving our money to get back on course. A pastor has to be a man who says, well, give or don't give. We're, we're going to follow the Word of God. But it may not be a matter of financial wealth. Oftentimes we think solely in terms of rich and poor. But the Scriptures do speak of women of high standing and the leading men of the city, Acts 13, 15. The leading women, Acts 17, 4. Those who seemed influential, Galatians 2, 2. Leading men among the brothers, Acts 15, 22. What does this tell us? What well, tells us what we know is, is true. That it, it, it might not be people with a great financial influence that can uh, tempt or pressure a man, but it might be political influence. Maybe he has a church in a, a place where there's uh, people in his church who are the uh, local magistrates. We've got a judge in the church, and when the sheriff goes to the church, and the police officers go to the church, they get the same treatment as everybody else. Or it might be people who just for whatever reason, seem to carry weight in the church. He cannot show partiality to them. He has to weigh all things by the measure of the sanctuary, which is the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? Then this is what we must do. And, I, and, and he can't be a man who is easily persuaded or shows partiality to those types of people. And he must do this humbly, not as a lord over the people, Keach there says, nor lording it over God's heritage, nor affirming any greater power than God has given him, but to show a humble and meek spirit, even to be clothed with humility. It takes this language from 1 Peter 5, where Peter says that the, the, the elders are to shepherd the flock, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. In verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. That word domineering is the word that Keats uses, lording it over. It, the, the word literally means, or literally translated would be downlording. The, the picture is that you're standing on top of a person as their Lord, telling them what they are to do, acting as a master. That's not how pastoral ministry works. That's taking authority or, or abusing authority that's not there. Some men do seek to influence the church in their charge in this way. They'll use strong language or harsh tones or even threats. If you, you better do this or I'm going to do this or if, if this comes out, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to publicly humiliate or, or whatever it might be. Trying to use something besides the Word of God and a humble example to lead the people. And that's that's not, to be, not to be done. This is not how God's steward is to act. He's not to beat his fellow servants, Matthew 24, 9. But he's to act as a humble servant. The sway that he exercises is to be held by the humble presentation of the Word of God. Here's what the Word of God says. 
and trust that the Spirit will use the Word of God to grip the consciences of the people, and in that way the church will begin, uh, will, will continue to move in the direction that God designs. Titus 1.7, Paul says, An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. In 2 Timothy 2.24, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So he must show no partiality, but lead with kindness and gentleness in humility, saying, here's the Word of God, here's what it says, and here's what we ought to do. In conclusion, let me just run back briefly through some of these words and phrases. The work of a pastor is to feed the flock, to be faithful and laborious, visit his flock, pray for them, be with them, sympathize with them with all love and compassion, show them a good example. He must see that he carries it to all with all impartiality. So this is an office, as you see, of of utter devotion to the service of the people of God. If our expectations are not shaped by the Word of God, we will all have unmet expectations. If we think that a man ought to be doing A, B, and C, but the Word of God has not called him to do that, we're going to think he's not doing his job. Uh, if, we, if we say, well, uh, he, he shouldn't be doing that, that, and that. I'm, I'm angry. But then we go to the Word of God and we say, well, actually, he should be doing that, that, and that. Well, again, it, it's unmet expectations that usually lead to strife and discontentment. Quoting Spurgeon, he says this, office requires, quote, the dedication of a man's entire life to spiritual work and separation from every secular calling. He gives up all his time, energies, and endeavors for the good of those over whom he presides. May God be pleased to raise up such men from among us and in all his churches, in all generations. When Christ says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest, this is what he meant. We have to pray but we also have to know what we're praying for and what we're expecting. So with that, let's close in prayer and we'll be dismissed.